0: Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. So in the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. The second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speakers' secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on, to help you to become a better leader in your field. So, before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest In the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email Guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening, I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show! Hi everyone, in this episode we are speaking with Prime al Husseini, Managing Partner at Full Cycle. Full Cycle is a growth equity fund designed from the bottom-up to accelerate deployment of what they consider to be climate-critical technologies. By investing in both the companies and their technologies, Brahim ensures that startups go from having a promising technology to being a £800 pounds gorilla in their respective vertical. I was tremendously excited to speak to Brahim about his goal to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech startups and companies, a cause that is close to my heart, and that is our mission at Startup Basecamp. Brahim's career began with a nutraceutical company run out of his dorm room. After a few more startups, he became a tech VC, but it was only after seeing the slow degradation of the natural environment every year back home in the Middle East that he decided to learn everything he could about climate change and dedicate his life and investments towards mitigating it. In this episode, Brahim gives a unique perspective of the VC landscape and why the current VC funding model does not work for the climate crisis. He lays out his argument while also giving a thorough look at investment numbers in the climate tech landscape, who the leading countries are in terms of technological innovation, where the investment gaps are in climate tech funding, and what is he doing to fix that. In the second part of the show, Brahim gives us a look at the criteria he uses to base his investment decisions and how founders should pitch him. He then covers what books recommend and how they help him achieve a work-life balance. Brahim, welcome to the show. Hi Brahim, welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today and especially because I believe we share this uh, common goal, which is to accelerate capital deployment towards those uh, climate tech companies. So I'm looking forward to this uh, great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are doing to support climate tech companies with Full Cycle. So welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Guillermo. It's good to be here. I appreciate it.
0: So before we start, as a tradition, uh, could you please give us a 30-second introduction about Full Cycle?
1: You bet. Um, so, Full Cycle is a growth equity fund that's designed from the bottom up to accelerate the deployment of what we consider climate critical technologies. We invest both in companies and their respective projects to accelerate the deployment of that tech to make sure that it becomes the goes from being a promising technology to the 800-pound gorilla in their respective vertical.
0: So let's start from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, your personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you do besides uh, working on supporting and investing uh, into founders? I mean, what makes you feel uh, inspired or like you, your best self? As I always ask, uh, who is Ibrahim? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I can't answer who Ibrahim is because
1: that's, you know, that, it's a, a perpetual question that I asked myself. Uh, but it has been fun, like looking at the hairball that is Brahim and as time goes by, pulling out hair after hair individually and looking at them and studying them and realize how they all affect together and the the domino effect that they create in my identity and my thinking and my feeling and my relationships. So super interesting question. Um, you know, I I have a very kind of random life story, not very conventional. You know, I'm, a inter- I'm one of those international students that came to the U.S. to attend college because the U.S. still has the lion's share of the best universities in the world. And I was so eager to move here that I didn't realize that Washington, there was a Washington, D.C. and a Washington State and applied to the University of Washington thinking I was going to Washington, D.C., and ended up in Seattle and you know that fortuitous detour actually is one of the reasons why i ended up staying in the u.s because i was dating a young lady who was way ahead of her time and she educated me in the early 90s about you know about mono crops about depleted farmlands about the nutritional value in in an apple during our age versus an apple our grandparents' age and why it's so much less nutritionally dense and and that's what got me to start a nutraceutical business so basically i started a business out of my college dorm room to supplement people's diets with vitamins because of the low quality of the nutrition that is going around the world and especially prevalent in america given our industrial agriculture practices and i guess the rest is history
0: It sounds like uh, you know starting a, a business out of a, a dorm room. It's like uh, kind of like the sometimes the American dream, and it sounds that like, uh, you know having this uh, also. Uh, this focus on uh, the environment, the nutrition, uh, and how to fix already this kind of problem uh, must have been like very uh, you know uh, educative for you, and you probably learned a lot. So maybe you can tell us about this uh, you know those different work and, and life experience that you uh, you had before uh, launching the, the fund and launching Food Cycle. I mean, what did you learn during that uh, journey that in a way give you an edge uh, to start the firm? Maybe if you have one or two uh, you know, nuggets of experience that you realize that uh, really like you learn a ton uh, during that experience.
1: So definitely my experience is an edge, but my biggest edge is that I actually care about my work. I mean, not a little bit, a lot. You know, right now I'm recovering from minor shoulder surgery in the Berkshires. And I'm sitting here, I'm in a air, beautiful Airbnb. Outside of my window is a field of echinacea flowers. And every day, these hummingbirds land on them and drink their nectar, and they just jump from flower to flower. The bumblebees are doing the same one after the other. And it is the most joyful part of my day. So like, you know, protecting this beautiful, unique planet that we have is what drives me. It's not the economics, even though they're plentiful. It's not the, you know, it's not the prestige it's whatever it is that can that is you know always fine to take like i'm happy to take the economics i'm happy to take the recognition i'm i'm happy for all of that but what really drives me is i just think that you know having 10 million expressions of multi-celled organisms so beautifully interacting with each other in a closed sphere in the middle of space and we haven't found any other planet that has any form of life, let alone so many beautiful expressions of it and not dedicating our careers to making sure that we preserve it and forcing humanity to eventually get into harmony with it with itself first and with the natural world. It seems like seems like a waste of talent, you know, because it seems so fundamental, like we, we all. Like survivability of us and what makes life worthwhile, which is you know beauty and experiences and you know uniqueness and richness of being alive, you know we should preserve that and enhance it. And unless we do that, it makes what piling up a bunch of money seem like a really silly life trajectory. So that's the biggest edge that I have is that I actually love what I do, uh, and I came to it super organically. Do you want me to tell you how that all happened?
0: Yeah, I would love to learn. I think that's a perfect segue for my uh, next question. Like, maybe you have, like, and you mentioned organically, but do you have, like, this really, like, I would say, fire starter moment or this haha moment revelation where you realize that gut theme, if I can use that, uh, that term and maybe we'll beep it, but uh, that really pushed you to say, okay, I want to uh, move into that field, I want to support uh, everything that you uh, just described before so the answer is yes um i so you know
1: i when i built and sold my vitamin business i took a year off and then built and sold another technology business and then built and didn't sell another technology business it got kind of trapped in the dot-com crash of 2001 and it was actually a successful growing uh revenue positive company it's just nobody would invest in a dot com after that and even though i was willing to put up my prorata the investors all decided that the internet was a fad and that it would never take off but here are we here we are right now you and i having an interview over the internet so um when when zoom stock was booming i used to send those old investors a copy of my the value of my zoom stock and write hey this fad just continues to go. Uh, anyway, so uh, I took the proceeds from my entrepreneurial endeavors and became a, a general technology investor, which was, you know, very like interesting and fulfilling, and I learned so much being a general technology investor. And you know, I'm from the Middle East. My family owns a home on the Red Sea, and every year I'd go back and visit them. So between 1991 and 2001, I'd go visit my folks and scuba dive in the same spot that I grew up scuba diving in. And I noticed year after year, every time I'd go, there would be material degradation in the quality of the marine life in the same spot. And my vivid memories of this endless, lush, vibrant marine ecosystem Completely gave way to a barren, dead, full of plastic, even plastic tires, you know, rubber tires landscape. So I remember that day is that aha moment, you know, just walking out of the water with my tank on my back and my BCD jacket on, all feeling heavy, just like my heart, and thinking to myself, like, what's the point of me continuing to accumulate wealth on a planet that's ultimately dying because what's happening underneath the surface of the oceans and seas was eventually going to make its way into our day-to-day environment because there is no there is nothing that affects one part of the biosphere that doesn't affect every other part of the biosphere you know it's just a matter of time so what so i went home i was completely befuddled and confused and for in the year between July and December of 2001, I turned my home into Climate University. Any professor in any field or adjacent field to uh, to climate, to biospheric sciences that was willing to educate me on what was going on. I was happy to pay to do so. So um, at the end of that education, um, I was obviously horrified, uh, but also felt like, okay, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's only going to get better if people like me and like you galvanize towards transitioning humanity from this high carbon economy to a low carbon future. And that's going to take a massive technological shift and a massive investment uh, you know to transition so I like I wasn't a government I wasn't an NGO my tools were entrepreneurism and investment capacity and investment experience so I started my first fund it was a venture fund and the idea was to seed some of these companies and help them grow seed a B etc and you know commercially very successful some of those companies graduated to become you know bigger players uh but i realized that the issue with the venture capital model for climate change is that it's too late for that model i mean it's it's kind of counterintuitive cuz you know america is the like is known for venture capital but there's a very big difference between building a software and and compared to building these super high capex infrastructure technologies first commercializing them and then one by one building them out across the planet you know it doesn't return the same uh it doesn't have the speed the irr the sexiness of building an app that you know once you build it you know 10 million people can download it a day you can't build 10 million power plants a day it doesn't work that way so you know so the the analogy that i give around venture vis-a-vis climate is if the fire is already in your backyard you don't go invent firefighting technology it's too late at that point you accelerate the rollout of existing technology which in the fires perspective is fire hoses, buckets um, you know the uh, what is that thing called that sprays that uh, that um, mist uh, fire whatever you get the point there's existing technology that's proven to put out fires. Our job is to spread that out around the world. so um, so I started a new fund called full cycle climate partners and it does two things uh, it first of all it prioritizes where money needs to go in the short term which is very important because that very few companies are doing that which I'm very surprised about because like global warming is a specific problem and it has to be addressed in a specific way it's not like it's not like building a, a another dating app you know, it's not like building a pot brownie delivery drone service. You know, it's not like connecting your fridge to your toaster to your dog collar. Like all of those, whether you build them this year or next year or the year after, are not going to have a material effect on the quality of humanity. But warming is an actually exponential cycle. So if we have a particularly hot summer, which we are right now, that means that glaciers recede further. You know, snow, uh, uh, ice, uh, sea ice melts more. So that means more of the sun's radiation gets penetrated into landmass, and it creates a warmer summer next year, and a warmer summer the year after because there's less reflective material, whether it's a glacier or sea ice you know, sending that radiation back into space. So we have to prioritize where money goes in the first quarter of the 21st century, in the second and the third and the fourth. We can't do a shotgun approach. There's, that's happening all over the industry, which I don't understand.
0: And I, and I think uh, this is a perfect segue to, to move to my, uh, my next question, and we'll come back to the, the full cycle. Uh, you know, uh, detail, and we'll uncover like the, the, the general thesis and the, the story behind it, and like uh, really the, the focus that you guys have. I I'd like to zoom out now and take a, a step back uh, at the capital allocation landscape towards uh, you know climate solution uh, today. And you already uh, you know spoke a little bit about that. You made this uh, interesting uh, um, statements uh, that you know uh, VCs or VC funding uh, on the space uh, might be uh, not the, the the right solution today. I think there's debates uh, around that. I think uh, nothing is like uh, white or black. I think there's a lot of uh, a gray area there. Uh, but anyway, this is not the point. So let's start by the, the, the fundamental test that makes a uh, you know, uh, the climate and and clean tech markets more relevant than ever today. Or maybe are we in a a bubble type of market, like, uh, you know, the the first green tech bubble that burst uh, almost uh, a decade ago? Um, And then maybe you can tell us a bit more about, like, uh, you know, after those fundamentals, like uh, how much capital is currently uh, deployed and and who are the the main uh, capital allocators?
1: All good questions. Let me let me read some statistics to you so uh, right now proven low-carbon technologies exist across you know all sectors and asset classes which is great we're in that moment you know and harnessing those technologies uh, in the transition to a low-carbon economy turns out to be a 42 trillion dollar investment opportunity so massive you know investments in real asset infrastructure is a critical component and there was a, a McKinsey analysis that estimated that achieving net zero zero emissions by 2050 is are going to require 9.2 trillion annually in physical assets alone and we're spending about 3.5 right now. So it doesn't matter what the you know OECD numbers are as far I'm concerned because you know global warming doesn't know borders or OECD numbers or not. So you know um, let me see the markets are beginning to respond to the opportunity um, so climate investments boomed right now to a total of 87 and a half billion so that's about 14 cents of every venture dollar went into climate up to uh, the first half of 2021. I know that number has decreased since um, unfortunately. I think right now uh, January um, there was 101 deals that were an all-time high. Um, but that figure is now by June is down substantially. In total, there's 409 deals closed in the first half of 2022, and that's down about 33% from the 2021 highs uh, where there were 612 deals, which is an, uh, down from uh, 3% from 2020's 421 deals. So, you know, is it, is it high? Is it low? It, you know, it's cycling with the market. And I think when Larry Fink says the next thousand unicorns uh, are going to be in climate tech, a, I think he's absolutely right. And I think that, you know, money's looking for there's a lot of money still sloshing around and it's looking for a place to go and it's very trendy. You know, it's this is hot right now. Everybody piles into it. That's hot right now. And so, you know, climate tech was very hot last year. Now it's becoming lukewarm. It's going to be hot again every time. You know, the, the reality that this is not a nice to have, it's a need to have. So it's like there is no there is no going around this. Uh-huh. Like there is no uh, you know waiting around till the market does this till the market does there, because every time there's a climate calamity, the ripples of it affect every asset class that anybody holds. And affects financial markets themselves because the economy is based on a stable climate. It like c- civilization actually only existed because in the last twelve thousand years we've lived in a stable climate era called the Holocene Age, and that's what allows us to congregate in cities and start to build you know a, a means of exchange, and that's what results in economies, et cetera, et cetera. So that that is now disrupted. It's just the beginnings of it. So people haven't really extrapolated the extent of what it means not to invest in transitioning to a low carbon economy to their portfolio. You know, what does that actually mean to the rest of their portfolio? So it is like this idea of it being cyclical and trendy will give way soon enough to the necessity of having to do it.
0: Do, do you have any insight on which sector of the you know, this green climate, uh, sustainable uh, economy captured the, the, the most capital uh, today? I mean, does the current, uh, I would say, distribution make sense regarding the, the need to reduce effectively and rapidly CO2 uh, or greenhouse gas uh, emission? And maybe what are the, the major constraints that you have identified to really, like, uh, in a way, put the dollar where there's the most impact? Um, it's a need of new policies, maybe, uh, to be put in place, a lack of... I would say capital available versus, uh, you know, expected returns. Uh, sometimes, you know, people uh, uh, in, you know, uh, early, early, uh, early on were like thinking that, uh, you know, giving to the green economy was like uh, being in the nonprofit world and, uh, and give to someone who's uh, uh, not uh, seeking also for return. Uh, or is it maybe a lack of, uh, you know, startups or tech uh, available to, to scale or to commercialize? So I'll give
1: you the inf- I'll give you the data first, and then I'll tell you how we're prioritizing where money goes. So, um, so energy and transportation is where most of the money went in 2021 and before. You know the uh, so 81 percent of total emissions reduction by 2025 re- is received 25 percent of the investment dollars. So basically, 81 percent went to 25 percent of where the emissions went. You know, a a salient example is light duty uh, battery EVs, which represent 3% of total emissions reduction potential, but received over 60% of total investments. In 2022, uh, a lot of the money went uh, out of EVs, all kinds of EVs and into carbon capture technology and a bunch of other sectors that I don't have the data on right now. Uh, And, you know, my, and like, and again, to me, that is an example of of trends, not on priorities. You know, as you know, we've all read all the headlines of Climate Works' uh, plant being built uh, in Iceland, you know, but for dollar per dollar invested, the, the result of the amount of carbon that they're going to be removing from the atmosphere is the equivalent of something like getting rid of 730 cars off the road. So you're talking about, you know, let's just be generous and say tens of millions of dollars to remove the equivalent of seven hundred and thirty cars worth of emissions off the road. And as a carbon return on investment, I understand that the idea behind this is to start at the seven hundred dollars per ton cost and try to drive it down over time through innovation. But if we were to focus on natural solutions like ocean fertilization, And we can get thousands of times more CO2 immediately. Not one day when the plant is built immediately started to uh, draw down uh, carbon. So for the carbon reduction market, it's a perfect example of the answer to your question is, is what is directing uh, where money is going? Economics. That's the answer. It's not climate, it's economics. You know, it's well intentioned. I'm not saying that there's no good intention behind it. But the ultimate driver is where is the return? Because as any because most fund managers, if not 99.999% of fund managers, their number and priority is not to lose their job and the ability to raise another fund, you know, and to maximize their carried interest. And any you know, and it's a it the incentives around this whole industry are off because you can't have individual economic incentives to solve existential global problems. It creates a really whacked set of incentives that, that has to be corrected. You know, we don't address these in our in our fund in the sense that like we um, we don't address them by going, okay, this is the priority such that we're gonna take unnecessary risk or invest too early or you know, not prioritize economics. But what we do is we look for needles and haystacks, you know, and which goes back to the thesis, which also answers your question in this way, where should money go? So here's a statistic that most people don't realize is CO2 is the weakest greenhouse gas. It is the most abundant, longer longest uh, lingering greenhouse gas. I mean, we literally have CO2 molecules in the atmosphere from the mid-1800s, you know, from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Industrial Revolution. Um, things like methane and nitrous oxide, for example, are short-lived gases, but they're much more potent. So ultimately, 1% of atmospheric greenhouse gases by volume, are actually responsible for 46% of the warming. So you have, you know, literally 1% responsible for close to 50%. So, from a carbon return on investment or a climate return on investment, since we're spending a lot less than what we need to be spending or investing a lot less than we need to be investing, that is where dollars need to go because it gives us the most leverage. And extends our runway the most. So that's the first thing we do: is we focus on infrastructure-scale technologies, not consumer-facing stuff, not you know the, uh, I don't know, like you know, like just infrastructure-level big capex technologies that focus on methane, nitrous oxide, refrigerant abatements, you know. And we make sure that the technology is advanced enough such that our job becomes to accelerate the rollout of the technology, not just getting it to become proven for the market because so what so we get it, you know, we prove it uh, to the market that now and it takes eight years or 12 years or whatever it is to build the first um, demonstration plant or the first uh, demo plant. Uh, and then we have to build the first commercial plant then we have to wait 3 years for all of the numbers to come back and maybe they're good and maybe they're not and then the infrastructure funds are like hey you know we'll tell us when you build the second one and then we might be interested because everybody wants to be first in line to fund the third plant you know so you have a 10 12 sometimes 18 year time frame of which these technologies that are critical today are sitting on the shelf waiting to become commercial and a lot of those companies die waiting for this moment Um, so what we do is we locate the technologies that have the highest impact from a climate perspective and are ready for the market so we don't take technology risks and then we pile our money into rolling out as many of their projects as possible So then the bigger pools of capital, the ones that want to invest in proven infrastructure technologies with high IRRs can look at those and go, oh, no brainer to fund them because there's no technology risk. And then they fund it project by project based on, you know, whatever the local risk factors are for that specific project without worrying about whether the technology is going to work or not. And that accelerates that bridge from promising technology to the standard torchbearer of that specific climate vertical that we call critical, because it te- addresses that one percent that is responsible for forty-six percent of the warming.
0: So, can you tell us a bit more about, like, um, I'd like to go back a little bit to the decarbonization of the uh, of the economy. I mean. We're getting the what would be according to you the the US advantages and, and weaknesses in regard of decarbonizing this economy and probably pushing this kind of like uh, you know project and, and technology that you guys are identifying and that hopefully uh, will accelerate this decarbonization I mean how do you compare uh, the US effort in that sense? versus maybe the, the, the rest of the world, the European, uh, you know, union or entity. Uh, do you see, like, major uh, roadblock as of today to accelerate this uh, decarbonization, except like, uh, you know, smart allocation of capital uh, as you sense to, uh, to at least, uh, you know, uncover? Uh, I mean, what needs to happen to accelerate this, uh, this movement and, and in which timeline do you think is, uh, you know, sounds realistic to you?
1: You know, I can't speak about the timeline uh, simply because there's a there's a governmental uh, issue here that's creating an imbalance in the market. Right. So, you know, the tax credits for oil and gas exploration and the in the IRS code, you know, the fossil fuel assets can IPO in ways that other assets can't like single single level taxation entities can go public but but for specific designated parts of the economy real estate and fossil fuel assets which is fascinating because the the fossil fuel industry has done such a good job promoting two two fallacies one of them is that the free, that they operate in the free market and they don't they operate in a completely subsidized market because of the existing uh, in, uh, the existing IRS code that supports them over other types of businesses so they're not a free market uh, number 1 number 2 is they've done a very good job in the 90s hiring pr firms to plant doubts on the validity of man-made climate change now, they stopped funding that effort because they're now all piling into these technologies and they want to invest and benefit from them. But the problem is you have a massive voting block that now actually believes all of this to be true, and they will fight tooth and nail. And that's neither here nor there. Most of the problem is that they'll vote for people who also are climate deniers. So when we're trying to create a level playing field where government can play a role in accelerating the incentives for investment capital to actually go into clean tech and low carbon infrastructure, you know, there those people are going to get in the way of it because to them, they, this has somehow been labeled as a socialist activity, even though the, the industries they support are subsidized by the social contract of the United States. So, To answer your question, the leader in clean tech is Europe and then Canada and then the United States. We know this because we see dozens of companies per week and we go into detail on all of them. And the ones that are most advanced are European. The ones that are second most advanced are Canadian. And the least advanced
0: because they were new to the space are American companies. So, and you believe that uh, even the Biden administration uh, is still like, or at least the, the whole, uh, you know, Washington, uh, I would say, uh, politics and, and administration behind that is like really like still slowing it down, the decarbonization and the, the effort uh, and really still in a way supporting or being under the influence of the, of the uh, Exxon and, uh, and other uh, oil company lobbyists?
1: not the administration I think the administration is well intentioned and they're trying to do all the right things and they're listening to all the right people but the 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 balance of power requires them to have X amount of support in Congress which they do in the Senate which they don't you know thanks to uh, uh, Joe Manchin you know the man can stop any sort of advancement of clean energy because, his funders and his states all come from the coal industry. He himself is an investor in the most polluting energy producing industry out there. And it is like, again, we have individuals, literally individuals, uh, just like the, the gatekeepers of the big pools of capital. We have individuals who are holding up, literally humanity and all living species so they can benefit individually. It's fascinating to me, actually, like to watch this, because you know the man has grandkids. So like you have to be a little sociopathic to like look at your grandkids and be like, yeah, but I want to be. I don't want to lose the next election. Geez, like you know, I like being a senator. I like apparently I like it more than my grandkids.
0: <laughs> but do, do you see that or do you have hope that uh, in the coming uh, decades or maybe five years or next round of uh, election, this could uh, could change in the guys? Do you feel that there is, a, there is uh, something happening? Uh, and, you know, I would say like... Uh, People are willing to, uh, to to embrace that change, or uh, you think that uh, unfortunately we'll need to uh, find our own way, uh, you know, and to deal with uh, with that, no matter what, uh, at any cost.
1: I mean, like, it, what is is climate change or gas inflation the issue that people are most concerned about right now? The, I'm talking about the majority. I'm not talking about you and I. I'm talking about like, you know. We if we had our pulse on all the ways that we check the pulse of society in the United States, what would we think the most talked about issue is? It's not climate change, it's gas prices, cheese prices, you know, hot dog prices. That's you know, that's what people are occupied with. They're occupied with how this affects their individual life, and we are trained not to think long term anymore we're we're a what is that a yolo economy you, have you heard that before
0: never heard about that but uh i was uh, thinking of this you know instagram uh, feed that you can have where every second uh, you move uh, to the beach to your friends <laughs> to a dog to whatever you you can have uh, according to you what what makes you think that um, you know economic growth uh and, and in a way high return uh, can be a uh, compatible with uh, sustainability in, in reducing uh, global emissions? I mean, we often hear that uh, the only way sometimes to go should be uh, degrowth.
1: Oh, I mean, it's to me, I, um, like, I see this and the way I talk about it is it's just another technology transition, you know, and every time we make a technology leap forward, trillions of uh, trillions of value is created. It's not the other way around. You know, when we transitioned from a landline to a mobile phone, we got the first trillion, two trillion, three trillion dollar market cap company in history, literally within five years, that company went to, you know, from nobody ever reaching a trillion to them hitting three trillion. You know and every supplier around them and every other company that has since bought a th- all the media companies because of so much money got created in the transition from landline uh, to mobile same thing with print to digital media you know same you can go back to the horse and buggy to the automobile and how that shaped our entire civilization so you know transitioning from dirty inefficient you know slow Um, the like like uh, technologies with unlimited negative externalities to their clean 21st century efficient efficient counterpart is inevitable. Like this is going to happen even if there wasn't a climate crisis, because these are these are technologies that are fundamentally better, faster, cheaper. So it's there's no issue here. You know, the the issue is that we've created headwind for ourselves because every behemoth industry, as soon as it starts getting market pressure, kicks the can forward by creating misinformation and disinformation, whether it was cigarettes, putting doctors on TV saying that they were fine, whether it's John D. Rockefeller making the uh, managers of the lead gasoline plants drink lead so he can show people that it's safe you know, like there's always a campaign, same thing with asbestos. I mean, we it took 20 years from when it was proven that asbestos is killing people till the banning of asbestos took 20 years. And in the meantime, lots of business got done. So we're in that moment where we're living in the inertia of the fossil fuel industry obfuscating the reality of their impact of their product and the expiration of their entire uh, system of profit making you know, and kicking the can forward as much as possible to the point that now they're quietly just investing in technologies that we invested in seven years ago. And they're the ones who are leading the next round. This is the irony of ironies, because they're part of the energy transition. They're ultimately energy companies. So they're transitioning to the new versions of it while having reaped the benefit of 30 years of funding misinformation. But I hope it doesn't blow up in all of our faces because they've created. They now have you know, tens of millions of people who don't believe we have a problem.
0: So with the goal in, in mind to keep this, uh, you know, 1.5 uh, degrees uh, Celsius of temperature increase by 2050, and uh, unfortunately I think we're going to be a little bit above that, uh, I mean, what is according to you the, the, the proportion of uh, take versus nature based solution that needs to be uh, implemented? And, and why do you believe pushing maybe both type of uh, solution is important or, or not?
1: Oh, well, um, so so there are certain... Every time there's a natural based solution we should focus on that because the because we have a finite amount of investable dollars and that produces much quicker much more bigger uh carbon returns on investment thousands of times actually and start producing those results immediately like if you fertilize the oceans you know the Blooms of plankton that result from it happen almost instantaneously. You know, they don't take you don't have to go and buy steel and get permits to build a carbon-sucking plant somewhere, and it takes you five years just to break ground and two years just to get going. Then you have to enter have to give it energy for 24 hours a day, and that energy has to come from somewhere. Plus, steel produces one ton of CO2 per ton of steel produced. So now you have that dilemma. Then you have to offset the actual carbon resulting from the structure that you built. And then you start sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. It's now seven years that from the time that you came up with the idea and got the funding. And then the results are this big. So like like I'm an investor, love all the story of how we're going to change the world by building one million carbon sucking, uh, you know, economically viable machines, you know, and that's what everybody wants. And that's what Stripe wants and Microsoft wants. It's because it's a simple story and you can quantify not because it's the right thing. We have a plethora of moments in history where we made a choice and the choice was basically around what seemed like the right thing to do, not necessarily what the right thing was. I mean, like I can tell you, I'm a student of history. I can tell you a thousand of uh, examples of that.
0: So you, you definitely uh, do, uh, not, not uh, you know believe on the, the fairy tale uh, bullet uh, silver bullet of uh, you know those uh, climb works of, uh, of this world but uh, uh, I think you know I'd like to get your last opinion on, on this uh, to close this, uh, this section regarding uh, uh, you know the, the recent controversy around like ESG labeled uh, funds I mean which often have these you know those dirty assets uh, in their portfolio I mean, What's you you know what do you what's your take on those uh, those funds uh, that claim to be you know sustainable and and you know try to use those uh, esg sustainable labels uh, as greenwashing tools sometimes i mean uh are they hurting uh, your industry uh what should be put in place in a way uh to um you know avoid and and clear clear this up i would say i mean so 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 I'm glad ESG exists.
1: I'm glad there is a, a label, that you have to do something. To, earn, okay? Because that what that does is allows a separate pool of capital to invest in your company. Now, you know, is it is it completely a scam? No. Is it mean? Oh my God! A company that has high ESG metrics mean that they're a good guy? No, it just means mostly that they're less of a bad guy. You know, it's like it's like the uh, if in that burning house, you know, that company without ESG standards was sitting with a blowtorch, I was sitting with a fire flamethrower doing this and then they had to make adjustments and now they're just sitting with a blowtorch. Both are not helpful in a burning building. But one is less bad than the other.
0: So, what do you think should be to, then, you know, put in place? Because uh, sometimes it like put a lot of discredit uh, into the, uh, you know, more sustainable and like funds that uh, really try to, uh, to 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 have a, a greener or cleaner portfolio uh, and and take care of the assets, uh, you know, and the, the investments that they do. Um, so, what would should be, you know? put in place to uh, kind of like curate and, and avoid those uh, bad guys uh, with uh, the torch inside of the building <laughs> so um
1: <laughs> so um thankfully there's something like 38 trillion dollars that is being transferred I'm so sorry about this no um go away um I don't even know how to tell him to go away. Hopefully he doesn't call back. Um, <laughs> and and how do I turn this off even? Jesus, who calls on FaceTime audio these days? <laughs> so um,
0: tell me the question again. So the question was like, okay, what oh, yeah, do you think? Okay. Yeah. I got, I got how, how can we like you know uh, get rid of them? What should be put in place uh, in a way to uh, to avoid those bad guys to be in the building while everything is burning? You know what I mean? So I'm a I am um, I, I do not know the quote
1: perfectly, but it's a uh, it's a uh, uh, Buckminster Fu- uh, Fu- Fuller Buckminster Fuller quote. Um, and it says something like, you know, don't fight the system, just build a parallel system or something that's better, and eventually it'll make the other system obsolete. So there's $38 trillion of wealth that's being transferred to the next generation and, you know, to spouses over the next 20 years. Great. So a lot of those young people grew up in the information age. They're not climate deniers. They're not. Uh, you know they they know the mess that their parents and grandparents created, and they want their money to be aligned with their values. They don't want to invest in Exxon and Chevron and Facebook and all these problematic companies. You know they want to invest in real things. So there's going to be so many uh, ETFs, so many funds that only that have their own metrics that only create much higher. Uh, metrics than just the stamp of ESG. You know, I don't under like you. Maybe you can educate me. The European Union is already doing that. It's something like what is it nine that anyway, they have a new system that is much more stringent than just the ESG label. And there's going to be so many uh, pools pooled uh, ETFs that are going to focus on the right types of companies and these young people will want to hold that in their portfolio and not just these you know like random companies because it's so confusing when they like they look at it, some of these ESG funds and they're like wait a second what is caterpillar doing in there what is ford doing in there now these companies are doing great things you know but they're still not doing good things they're just doing less bad things which is better than the companies that are doing all bad things for sure but we're just past that point <laughs> you know that point we we should have been doing in the '80s, you know. We should have been doing less bad in the '80s, and by now have been doing strictly prioritized strategic good. Except now we're still labeling less bad as good. We
0: need to hurry up. So let's go into the the specific of uh, of the full cycle uh, fund. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about the uh, you know story uh, behind it, the genesis of it. Like, I mean, what's the initial gap that uh, you guys saw? And that led to, uh, to the, the, thesis uh, of full cycle that you already uh, started to, uh, you know, explain, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more after, like, uh, what do you offer to, to founders and companies that you invest in? I mean, uh, what are the challenges are specific to them that uh, you guys try to uh, to bridge, uh, to bridge this gap and really help them, and they, you know, in a way should come uh, and work uh, with you guys. So we have a very founder-friendly proposition because
1: not only do we invest in the equity of the company, we also invest in their projects. And that's one of the biggest uh, ways we can support these technologies and these founders. From a technology standpoint, like I said earlier, the biggest issue in the industry is who's gonna fund the first commercial plant. You know, and usually these founders have to run around the earth trying to cobble together, you know, I don't know, some government subsidy, some grant here and there, some uh, really impassioned investors who are willing to take extreme risks, all kinds of things. There's companies that have taken 19 years to fund their first commercial plan because of that gap in the market. Who's going to fund the first commercial plan? Like I said earlier, the joke is everybody wants to be third in line to fund first in line to fund the third project. So who's going to fund those first three projects? So we do that. And the reason why we do that and how we offset the risk for our LPs is we get an exclusive to fund dozens more projects at pre-negotiated economics. So the risk we take on the first ones gets washed out in the future ones without having to get pressure from uh, cost of money when other people want to pile in. Our economics are already pre-negotiated. So we invest in the equity of the company, we go deep, we sit on the board, we pick projects together and then we invest in those projects. And we want to make sure that they're commercial projects, not low, uh, you know, low return, uh, uh, the uh, low IRR projects, no fair market value returns. And then we have this mix of project equity financing and corporate equity ownership. And that's that's kind of our Secret sauce or not so secret sauce that allows us to accelerate the deployment of climate critical technologies and help founders solve this biggest gap in their business, which is very helpful to them because they also don't suffer as much dilution. Because part of that mix that they cobble together is also selling a lot of corporate equity to try to fund that first commercial plant, and sometimes it doesn't work because the plant costs a hundred million dollars, but the company's valuation is 80 million dollars and you know it's like let's say they sell 25 million of equity well that's a, their dilution to add to the mix that they need to to make that plant viable and running and we take all of that off the table for them so we are a very deep strategic partner that's also value aligned we're not like johnny or janet come lately to the space we've been doing this before any of the nomenclature was even invented like, we, you know, I've been in this space since
0: 2001. So how do you source those, um, you know, incredible uh, founders and team that uh, that you guys fund? I mean, like, how do you identify it, uh, that in a way they reach the, the market readiness stage? Uh, what are the, the criteria and maybe the, the, the framework uh, that you guys uh, uh, use or, or, or define? And... Uh, can you give, give us maybe like uh, one example of a previous investment that uh, you guys did uh, to illustrate uh, all of that? Sure. Um, so the InPipe is a good
1: example. So, you know, InPipe came to us from one of our investors and we looked at it back when it was early and we passed and then they built their first commercial plant and then they came to us again and we invested years later. And what these guys do is they do something super fascinating. They uh, put, you know, the most people don't realize that 61% of the energy budget of a any municipality is the cost of pushing water around because they have to put enough pressure on the water to reach the furthest regions of their municipality. So if you live close to the power the uh, the water treatment plant, the pressure is very high, so that's why they have to put pressure reduction valves there to minimize that pressure. And all of that wasted kinetic energy is wasted as heat. So what these guys do is they built a pressure reduction valve that also happens to be a a hydro turbine. So it does the job of reducing the water pressure, but it also captures all that latent energy and puts it back into the grid times dozens of these all over every city and every town all over the world and when you add that all together you're literally talking about a systemic reduction in wasted energy that results in about six percent on a global scale less energy use for something that produces a a low double digit in low 20s double digit irr and is a systemic relatively easy solution to, in, uh, to uh, integrate compared to the building by building efficiency play where every building has to get new glass and new HVAC. And maybe people want, you know, air conditioning or a heat pump and maybe they don't. That's a very slow process times millions or sorry, hundreds of millions of dwellings all over the world. And it's still efficient, it still has to happen, but we look for systemic solutions. And this solution is the no brainer for every city and town because they're already installing these pressure reduction valves, except these guys turn that pressure reduction valve also
0: into a hydro turbine for them. So, going back to that, uh, you know, and Can you tell us a bit more like this, like, how do you define that uh, them or others, um, I would say, like, companies that, uh, you know, pitch you guys are, in a way, market-ready? What is the... The different like key data points or like uh, specification that makes you think like uh, okay this company is not just about the idea and this prototype but really if we push on the accelerator and give them uh, the, the the cash they will have this uh, they are ready to uh, to grow and, and conquer uh, at least one part of the of the market like. I mean, what is the, how do you identify that? Because I feel it sometimes could be very challenging. And, you know, uh, how do you know that, in know, way the markets will adopt uh, that technology or is really already proven?
1: Yeah. So when you remember that needle in the haystack, so we look for that needle in a haystack and usually that needle also comes with existing installations and revenue, you know, not that we're specifically looking for revenue, but they've already done it. Like then they've done all the work that they need to do to have already built the technology and found the mm-hmm. customer to buy it. And it's been operational for X amount of years. So when we come in, they make our job really darn easy. It's just that that, you know, they remember the buckets and hoses in the burning house. You know, yeah. they've already proven that a bucket is a very effective technology. And so is a fire hose. It's just that they've come during a time where, you know, they've built something that was not trendy. So they've been sitting, waiting for companies like funds like Full Cycle to take their technology and roll it out. Because you're wondering, like, why are they, why are, why is this not ubiquitous yet? Because all the money was going to apps on your iPhone. Because every smart person in the world was trying to figure out how to get you to buy more shit you don't need. Like, and now that's no longer sexy. Now that's considered a bad thing. So now people are like, oh my God, I'm now going to quit my marketing, you know, technology job. And I'm going to invent clean tech. Well, great. Well, a lot of people have already invented fantastic things and they've been sitting waiting for the right pool of capital to come and roll them out globally. And, you know, I just lament the fact that, you know, even if it, it was clear to us, it was not clear enough to enough investors and family offices and high net worth individuals and institutions that would invest that they took so long to fund us. And we were late later than I would like to fund them. But hey, we're now, you know, have deployed into five different companies and we're already breaking ground on two projects for two of those companies. So our thesis is working. It's not a blind pool. It's not a theory. And all of those companies are three of them are about to get marked up substantially. So from a commercial standpoint, our fund is doing fantastic. You know, if you look at it without any ideological alignment, if somebody doesn't even care about climate change just commercially, they can salivate on our returns and participate. And we're not here to, you know, like you know, stand on a soapbox. We're just here to to redirect capital where we think we need to in a risk-adjusted manner. So for you know, for our sake to make sure that Joe Manchin's grandkids actually have a future, you know, and make sure that our LPs and our GPs and all our partners benefit from and everybody benefit from a world that's in harmony with itself and with the natural world, which we're far from today.
0: So which sector are the most uh, promising for you today in terms of like what I called uh, impact cash return or ICR? Uh, this means like building impactful company while creating highly profitable business. And I think that's uh, what you guys are really uh, looking for. Do you see any underdog or subsectors, areas that you are really excited about and that other investors are maybe not looking at uh, or like underlooking at it? Um, uh, tell my favorite, that. my dream. Okay, you want to hear what my dream is? Love to.
1: Yeah. My dream is for someone to grow macroalgae at economics that allow them to be a substitute for animal feed. Because if you think about what happens then, is if you can feed cows seaweed, and you can grow massive forests of seaweed. First of all, the you know they start cleaning the oceans. Second of all, they give marine habitat thousands of hectares of space to thrive in. Then, all the billions of acres that we dedicate to uh, farming food to feed our cows and pigs, that all gets moved to the ocean, allows that to get rewilded and become habitat again for the natural world, and become you know a way to draw down carbon as trees grow in it and all kinds of grasses grow in it, and creates a probably a more a healthier cow to begin with because I don't believe people are all going to become vegan. So you have this virtuous cycle where you have the economics from the macroalgae. Some of it comes from like selling chemicals to all kinds of industries. The rest goes to animal feed. And you know I don't need to repeat myself. And then all the pesticides and herbicides and rodenticides and all the crap we spray on the land that ends up polluting all our waterways and our oceans, all of that goes out of the equation. And you get this fantastic virtuous cycle because you can grow this stuff you know, without having to, you know, put a zillion and one chemicals, you just have to create the right lattice structure, and whatever you know robotics you need to to minimize the cost of harvesting and planting, and then find a way to dry it and transport it at economics that work. That would be a dream come true.
0: And without, the, I mean, speaking about like the the tons of uh, CO two that will be also absorbed by uh, you know those. Uh... Uh, algae uh, inside of the the ocean. That's uh, that's super exciting. Uh, so for anyone who's uh, working on that uh, out there, and uh, sounds to have something that uh, that makes sense. Uh Please, like, contact uh, Ibrahim. I'm sure uh, he will uh, have a attentive uh, look at it. Uh, out of all the pitches, uh, I mean, that you hear, in your opinion, which are the, the solution, or at least you mentioned like few of them already during the, the interview, that you believe makes no sense whatsoever and sounds like uh, they may be a waste of time and resource or greenwashing. Would you have like maybe one example Uh, without naming any companies? uh, We don't like to shame you on the show, but listen, I
1: don't think anybody has maybe I'm naive, but I actually don't feel like people have, you know, specific sinister intentions. I think they fundamentally believe that they're doing the right thing, you know, uh, and I can't think of a better example of, to me, wasted capital other than these direct air capture companies that are popping up all over the place. I have no issue at all with, you know, like having a technology that um, is able to take, to, uh, you know, all the emissions from industry and turning it into something valuable. I have no issue with that whatsoever, but like, but popping machines all over the world, you know, the that are very expensive to run, to build and to operate, um, you know, especially knowing that nature can do a such better job for so much less money is mind boggling to me, literally mind boggling. And, you know, I really hope I'm proven wrong. Maybe I don't know something that I'm, I'm missing in the equation. I have no idea, but um, it is. I. At the moment, I am baffled at the billions that have been invested in this space and the companies
0: that are continuing to back it. So how do you measure uh, impact? Uh, I saw that you use this uh, CROI or carbon return on investment as a specific criteria to uh, that drive your investment decision. I mean, can you tell us more about like the, that process, that frameworks. like uh, do you rely on scientists and experts to validate uh, that? or? How does it work? Uh, well, all strict, CROI is, is that? Standard, uh...
1: actually. CROI, we didn't invent CROI. CROI is standard. CROI 20 is what we did, which is, you know, there's something called GWP 100 and GWP 20. GWP 100 is global warming potential of a molecule. Like in the past, we've been saying this, by the way, for 20 years. Why are we calculating the potency, the greenhouse, the greenhouse potency of a molecule over 100 years? We don't have 100 years. We don't have 20 years. So since you have two metrics, we should use GWP 20 to assess what is the most potent greenhouse gases to focus on. For example, GWP 20 of methane is 86. GWP 100 of methane is 24. So because it it degrades over time in the atmosphere, into CO2 ironically. um, so if we are focused on GWP100, then we look at methane as not so potent because it goes down to 20. But it, you know, since warming begets warming, we need to front load the impact of our dollars such that we can slow down the warming cycle until it stabilized and then start to cool it down. right? So that's when we marry CROI with GWP 20 and invented CROI 20, as the metric that we use, we also also make sure that every technology that we choose has a minimum of one gigaton abatement at full deployment, because you know you know the discrepancy between what human civilization produces in greenhouse gas emissions and what the Earth can absorb is around 52. So every one of these technologies is responsible. For you know one out of one or more out of 52, one technology that we're behind, which is a Dutch technology called Sinova, you know, it can it, at full deployment, it can produce, you know, it can abate four to seven gigatons at full deployment and it has the potential to close all landfills in all nations because it's a real viable solution to landfills globally and our whole global waste issue. So imagine the ripples, for the ocean and ocean marine life and, 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 and you're talking about on a GWP 20 basis, four to seven gigatons out of 52. That's just one technology in one company.
0: So what's next for a full cycle? A vacation. <laughs> <laughs> vacation? We don't have time for vacation. We don't okay. even have 20 years <laughs> left.
1: <laughs> so what's next for us, honestly, is we need to do a better job focusing uh, on raising more capital into our funds and starting more funds. Because it's a, as you can imagine, raising money during COVID was a nightmare. You know, and we are, you know, close to closing our current fund. So, you know, that's that's something that we have to focus on. And we need to close it now that it's getting marked up substantially. We need to close it and start working on our next fund. Because we have so many great companies and we're not we're not a throw spaghetti against the wall type fund. We don't invest in 40 companies per fund and hope to become unicorns and five return capital. And the rest we never talk about again because we know what happens to them. That's not our theory. We we invest late. We go deep. We accelerate the success curve for them because climate change is a race against time. And we have our next ten companies for our next fund already ready. We just want to focus on going a little deeper with our existing companies and leave them. They're already walking, so we want to leave them running. They can start sprinting after us on their own and start focusing on helping the the next ten that are crawling. We need to lift them up and help them walk. And once they start running, start the fund after that. So that's somewhere in there, there is going to be a short vacation. God damn it.
0: <laughs> okay, but thank you so much. Our last question for this part of the of the show. Like, what's your personal view uh, on the on the climate crisis? I mean, as I always ask, are we doomed? Uh, I mean, what would you say to to people who are like you know feel demoralized uh, by all of the visible consequences uh, as of today uh, about uh, you know climate change?
1: what would, you be, like, what would like be your the, words? You mean like the Western monarch butterfly? being added to the endangered species list, things like that. Yeah, it's damn demoralizing. You're right. Uh, my response- I'm speaking
0: about I'm speaking about the the wildfire that you find everywhere on Earth. I'm speaking about the heat that I'm currently living through now uh, here in uh, in in Europe. Uh, I'm speaking about all of those consequences like mountains starting to collapse, uh, glacier and whatsoever. Like I feel people could be demoralized, and I am feeling sometimes demoralized, but very excited about what I do. Uh, and speaking with people like you makes me uh, give me a lot of hope. But what is your opinion regarding this uh, this crisis right now? What so, would you tell them? So,
1: so my opinion is, uh, your biggest lever, you know, if you're if you're somebody of minimal wealth, your biggest lever is how you vote. So vote responsibly. It doesn't matter if you like the person. This you're not going to date them. You want, you, this is not a popularity contest. Your job is to vote for the most qualified person who cares about the most important issue of our lifetime, which is climate change, and they have facility to do something about it. So that's the number one thing that you can do if you you know, and if you're somebody of means, then find the right pools of capital to pull your money into that are going to help transition us to a low carbon economy. And there's plenty pools of capital to do that in. But know truth be told and I don't like to exaggerate it's going to get worse before it gets better but it will get better if we stop being uh, demoralized to the point of being uh, immobile you know and honestly like stop buying crap like you know when like that, that commercial that shows up in the middle of your Instagram feed with the beautiful model that is like when you now have to buy this. You don't do it. Stop buying more things. Nobody needs more things. Okay, that has to end from the human story. And anybody who promotes it needs to stop promoting it. It takes so much water and energy and materials to produce the things stop buying more than you need and because it, like if you're not gonna help then please don't hurt
0: so how can the community uh, can you know for uh, investors uh, founders experts listening to the show today can uh, can help you
1: oh i mean very, very straightforward just go, go to our website send us an email with your company with, you know, if you want to look at any of our material, you're welcome to if you're a qualified investor, um, you know, thank you, you know, for caring, anybody can play a part like Guillermo one day and I don't know your full story, but you're dedicating your podcast to spreading a very important message from you know, and creating a platform that you're bringing, you know, you know, expertise, ideas, founders, money, creating kind of a marketplace for every stakeholder to come together and accelerate the uh, the transition to a low carbon economy. Like, you know, be creative. Anybody can play a role in doing this. So, you know, again, our website uh, is fullcycle.com. You know, my Twitter handle is iAlHusseini. We also have a Twitter handle that's at fullcycle. You know, reach out to us and, you know, let's, let's have a conversation, see how we can partner up together on, you know, on making that it, that time frame that is going to get worse before it gets better as short as possible
0: any any question that i should have asked you for this uh, first part of the show I, I did not listen
1: you know i love to talk about my experiences with the natural world and i just want to remind everybody to go out and be in nature and remember what you're protected, because if you le- if you're landlocked in a city and you haven't like gone to a forest you haven't you know sat and watched hummingbirds feed on an echinacea flower and really just marveled at creation calling it creation is is so loaded uh, at the natural world Then I invite you to do that, like just so you know what's at stake, because you know the it's like life is a miracle, it is a miracle, you know if you think about it in the vastness of the emptiness of space, like we are, the, the chances that any of us are alive and that anything is alive at all is so infinitesimal, that we have infinite, infinite. Uh, opportunity to marvel at all of this and to be filled with a desire to protect it. So go be in nature and remember.
0: Thank you so much, Brian, for your time, Uh, incredible insight on the uh, industry, your passion, Uh, and I'm so excited to see uh, many brilliant uh, people like you putting so much effort uh, to move the the ball towards a, a better and cleaner world. Uh, and I'm very excited to uh, follow up on, uh, on you guys and, uh, and look at the companies uh, that you're investing at uh, in and uh, maybe some of them uh, will be part of the show, too. So uh, don't hesitate to, uh, to keep in touch.
1: Thanks, Guillermo. Thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. And again, hats off to you for having a show about climate tech and you know, shining a spotlight on this field and the importance of it. I really respect that and admire it very much and appreciate it as well. So good luck to you and to all of us. We're going to need it.
0: Thank you so much. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climatic ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation, or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupdiscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one, and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation, And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.